everyone, and welcome back to Historical Friction. My name's Alice Proctor, I'm a writer and art historian, and this is a podcast about representing the past through pop culture. This is the first episode of what I guess is technically my second season. My guest for this show is Hannah Taylor. Hannah's a friend of mine, we've known each other for a couple of years now, and they've done some really cool work on the history of archaeology and interpreting archaeological sites. So they were the perfect person to talk about The Dig with. The Dig is a new Netflix film about the excavations at Sutton Hoo. It will help if you've seen it before listening to this episode, but we cover the history of Sutton Hoo fairly generally and it's not essential to have watched it. Couple of notes before this episode. I took a break over December and January to record more episodes and take some time to think about the directions that I want this show to go in. As a consequence of that, uh, we're going to be having fortnightly episodes now, and I've redone things over on Patreon, so now if you sign up to support the show, you'll get a bonus episode every month. It will be little outtakes from the main episodes and bonus bits of conversation that didn't quite fit into the show. There's one up there now, featuring a discussion with Hannah, my guest for this episode, about women in archaeology and some of the things that didn't make it into the dig and some of the people that we would like to see represented. The link is patreon.com slash historical friction or there's a link in my Twitter bio. The show is on Twitter at history friction. I'm on Twitter as AA Proctor and you can find out a lot more about what I've got going on there. One other thing to mention is that in the episode, Hannah and I discussed the absence of two major figures, Mercy Lack and Barbara Wagstaff. Lack and Wagstaff were some of the photographers that recorded the excavations at Sutton Hoo. They were close companions, in quote marks, and I'm very interested in finding out more about them. They're not present in the film, we don't go into too much detail in the actual episode, but There are a number of things about their lives and biographies that make me wonder if perhaps they were a couple. I'm investigating this. I know a couple of other people are looking into it as well. If you know anything more about them or know where we might be able to look to find out more about them, I'd love to hear from you. And the best way to get in touch is via Twitter. So send me a message if you've got any suggestions. Apart from that, there's not much more to say. Uh, Enjoy the show and I'll see you in two weeks. Hi, Hannah. Hiya, how are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Could you introduce yourself for people, please? Yeah. So my name's Hannah. I'm a PhD researcher and I work on interpretation of outdoor heritage sites, particularly Hadrian's Wall. So inevitably at some point during this conversation, I'm going to bring it back to Hadrian's Wall. That is just where my brain is. I'm just (laughs) going to apologise for that in advance. That's okay. There is absolutely nothing to apologize for there. And we are talking about a film that's been quite popular on Twitter, actually. Uh, We both watched The Dig, which is a new Netflix film about the excavations of Sutton Hoo in the 1930s. It got a lot of promo, and I think there was this sort of real buzz around the idea that we would see archaeology on film that got people very, very excited. Um, this is an interesting piece of media to talk about because it's really not so much about the treasure and the actual dig as it is about the people that were involved in that and 
the film takes as its main character Basil Brown, who was one of the people involved in excavating the site and has in recent years been sort of reinserted into that narrative. So we talked about the representation of class and culture within this film, uh, some of the things that the film gets right and wrong in terms of how it represents these individuals, as well as some stuff about the gender of the participants in the dig and what this sort of find at Sutton Hoo really meant more broadly. So, Hannah was the perfect person to ask onto this show. I know you because we've got a lot of friends in common, we've known each other for a while, but I thought of you because around the time we first met, you were involved in a project about archaeology and the history of archaeology as part of your master's program. That's right. I was, as part of my master's at Durham, I worked on a project for uh the 100th anniversary of partial suffrage for women, not full suffrage, that was based around um, women in archaeology. So we were looking at historical women and what their role in archaeology was and actually how important they were to the development of it as a practice, as well as looking at archaeological techniques and how that developed. And if you're more interested, if you're interested in finding out more about that, uh, I wrote an article that's up on the English Heritage website and I'd also recommend Trailblazers who do absolutely fabulous work in this field. Yeah, yeah, Trailblazers are great and massive shout out to them. Um, let's talk about what happens in the course of this film. It's set in 1939 and it essentially covers a summer excavation season. Uh, it begins with Edith Pretty, who is played by... Um, Kerry Mulligan inviting Basil Brown to do some excavations on her land. She's got these large burrows that have been unexplored and she thinks that there might be treasures or something in there. So Brown is invited um, to take part in these excavations and right from the beginning we know what's going to happen because Sutton Hoo is now this incredibly famous excavation but there's this sort of building anticipation over what this dig site might be. Um, could you talk us through what the Sutton Hoo site actually is and sort of how it's conserved today? So the Sutton Hoo site is pretty widely thought to be the possible grave site or cenotaph because we don't have any actual evidence for body of Raidwald, um, who was a Brettwalder, or at least is referred to as such by the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Um, so he's a sort of powerful overking in this area. And he's one of the first early medieval monarchs in the area to convert to Christianity, whatever that means to him. Um, it's a burial site that's not really happening in a vacuum. There's a lot of other things that are happening around it. Uh, so nearby, we've got field boundaries going back to the Neolithic period and an earlier mixed cemetery that looks like it's focused on a prehistoric burial ground with a lot of little barrows. Um, we think it looks like a really wealthy burial centre with a lot of warrior burials or rather at least of people who've got the sort of status that they're uh, buried with expensive elite objects like swords. Um, when you're talking about the early medieval period, people are obsessed with swords and kind of the status that you get from having a sword and how good your sword is. You get what are interesting, there are some interesting 
weirdly gendered burials. I'm not sure if they're only at Sutton Hoo, but you do find them elsewhere um, of people who we think are probably women who are buried with swords because of the status. Right. Um, but when you look at these burials, they kind of fade out once you get to Sutton Hoo, which is the elite burial ground. So Sutton Hoo is the ship burial. So basically they've built a, bar- a barrow and kind of brought this ship in from the river and popped it on top and built over it. Mm. And the one at Sutton Hoo is actually 24 metres long. It's got absolutely incredible grave goods that look like they have a really Frankish influence. So when we're looking at it, we're not thinking about it just being a British burial. It's a burial that's coming with lots of influences from Europe. Um, I don't know. Did you see the Staffordshire Horde when it toured a couple of years ago? Yeah. That's exactly the sort of thing you're finding at um, Sutton Hoo, except even better. Right. Um, Like when you look at the Staffordshire Horde, you've got these gorgeous objects that are garnets and gold. The gold wire in some places is maybe a millimetre thick, which is ludicrous when you think of the technology they're working with. (laughs) <laughs> absolutely like I was just absolutely stunned when I saw it mm. in Bristol so there are some other elite burials on site so in the 90 I think the 1980s um, we excavated Mound 17 which has a young person wh- who's got a full set of kind of high quality weapons and a riding horse with a decorated bridle which is quite unusual like yeah. you don't get a lot of kind of horse burials in this sort of environment and there's also another ship burial to the north which the people in this film would have known about because right. it was excavated in 1862. It was excavated at Snape. Right, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that one's actually about half the length of the one at Sutton Hoo. It's 14 mm. metres long. But as the same as the ones at Sutton Hoo, you can probably associate it with... There's a royal palace at Rendlesham, which is quite nearby. Right. So they're both probably the same sort of family okay. or at least the same people ruling from the same area. So if it's not the same dynasty, then it's certainly people who are kind of equivalent to each other. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really, Sutton Who's really fascinating because it's Mm. also one of the very last of these kind of, these burials, which we call princely burials. Mm. So after the 620s, they kind of fade out. Right. Um, Although for elite women, they kind of persist into the seventh century. Men stop being buried like this. Okay. Uh, Nick Hyam suggests that they're associated with, because at this point, Mercia and Wessex are converting to Christianity, right. that this is kind of some sort of last gasp of pre-conversion elite. And that's how they're show- choosing to show off their wealth and status. And this could line up with the reason we don't actually find a body inside the big ship burial at Sutton Hoo. Right. There might have been one, but we've got no evidence of one, uh-huh. that he might have had a Christian burial but been buried in, oh, but and been buried elsewhere, but kept this as a cenotaph from yeah. before he converted. Okay, it's really fascinating. That's fascinating, definitely. Um, something that comes up in the film is the finding of a Merovingian coin, and so there's this sense that even within the film, they're trying to show the, I guess, multiculturalism of this site. The fact that we have. Um, traded items coming from Europe, coming from across Britain, this idea that it's got a kind of bigger cultural power than just a local gravesite is something that is hinted at in the film but not really explored. Although we do get a terrible moment of one of the archaeologists 
screeching about how this means that the Anglo-Saxons had culture, um, which I think we'll come back to because there's a lot to unpack there. I think we can definitely come back to that one. Yes, there's some things I want to say there. (laughs) So the actual excavation takes place over a couple of years and the land belonging to Edith Pretty was... uh, The film sort of suggests, and it seems from her biography as well, that she'd bought this land with her husband with the intention of excavating it, but that he had died before that had happened. And so something that she chooses to do is continue this excavation. Should we talk about Edith Pretty? She's a really interesting woman who has a a fascinating biography that is kind of, I would say, underutilized by the film. I would agree on underutilised because um, obviously the real Edith Pretty is a fairly well-educated and very well-travelled woman, but that doesn't come across in the film at all. She's mm. kind of a bit of a dying cipher. Um, <laughs> I Genuinely, I'm not sure yeah. what character she has outside of mother, dead husband. Yeah, no, she travelled across right across Europe. She'd been to Egypt and Greece. She'd been to the US and India. I think they actually mention in the film um, about her father's excavation of a Cistercian monastery. And she was friends with the daughter of the archaeologist who worked with him on that, uh, who is Archibald Sace, who is a bit of a big topic to get into right now. But he's very interesting in himself. But obviously, she's very, very aware of this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And this is obviously... We're well past the like peak of Egypt mania, which I'm sure you know all about. We, yeah, if you're interested in Egypt mania and particularly the way that that comes across in excavation, I would say we did the episode on the mummy with Nicole Cochran um, back in November, and that's actually set in the sort of decade just before the dig takes place. That's really all in the peak of Egypt mania. So, yeah, she's sort of at the tail end of that kind of fascination. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and obviously, she's also been, she's also got the influence of um, World War One on her. Mm. So she worked with the French Cross during World War One, both in the UK and in Europe. So she's, she's much more interesting than she's coming across. And I'm also really fascinated by the fact that she seems to have been quite a keen spiritualist. Um, yeah. She donated a lot of money to spiritualist churches. And considering how much they play up this angle of her being a dying woman who's looking for her future and what's going to happen to her son. And why didn't they play that up a little bit more? I absolutely agree. I think spiritualism is a really interesting thing that's running in the background of a lot of archaeology at this time. The idea that you've got this sort of connection to another time, the idea that excavation is almost a form of seance is something that's so fascinating and you see this really strong overlap between people interested in archaeology and people interested in spiritualism. We get a lot of uh, the stuff about Basil Brown being interested in astrology and the stars and the son, Edith's son, is also fascinated by space. But even though we've got this kind of hint at these characters interested in a kind of world beyond their own, we never really engage with the spiritualism. And I wonder if that comes down to the fact that, I guess for a modern audience, that sort of interest in spiritualism can seem a bit sort of woo-woo and not very not very interesting, or at least imply that this character is not to be taken seriously. It's become a bit of a, 
uh, a bit of a cliche and not would ne- not necessarily fit with the way that Edith's being presented in this film, which is as a kind of independent driven woman who's trying to survive this illness and look after her son as well. So I can understand why that got cut, but I'm also disappointed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously I'm assuming that the scriptwriter is probably a bit smarter than me when it comes to writing and spent more time doing it. But it it seems like a real shame to have lost that ankle from from this idea that she's dying. Like surely yeah. her like early twentieth century Britain is a deeply religious period. Mm. How is how is her religion not coming into this? Right. And especially because Edith Pretty is one of the characters who when she discusses the fact that Sutton Hoo is a gravesite, she seems really fixated on the idea that it's a burial place. And a lot of her character is wrapped up in this kind of morbidity. But to not have the sense of what that emotionally means for her means that she ends up being quite insubstantial. The fact that we have scenes of her going to the doctor in London, which does really break up the plot in quite a clunky way, but we don't see her sort of dealing with the emotional impact of her illness is unfortunate and it really makes her very insubstantial setting aside the fact that carrie mulligan is 35 years old and she's playing a 56 year old that really leaves her as a kind of she's a bit of a sock puppet character (laughs) yeah no i absolutely get you and i think that's played out by the way they've um, chosen to clothe her i don't know if you Mm. noticed but almost everything she wears is so pale she she almost is a ghost wandering through the movie Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that's an interesting stylistic choice, but it does also mean that we have this woman who was actually a really interesting and really significant figure kind of fade into the background of a film that's nominally about her. I think this is also an issue to do with the source material. The Dig is not the story of the Sutton Hoo excavations. It's the adaptation of a book around the Sutton Hoo excavations. So there's a lot missing from what's conveyed in this. And the choice to adapt the novel rather than sort of create a historical film is one that I think is responsible for a lot of this slightly flimsy characterization. It means that we see Basil Brown really very much as the main character. And he's a very interesting person. He's someone who has been sort of cut from the archaeological record and has now been reinserted into the narrative, which is an important process. Should we talk about Brown and what he was actually like? Yeah, let's talk about him for a minute. So he is absolutely a really unusual guy for this era. era. Um, Archaeology was and still continues to be, to some extent, a very posh man's club. Um, Like, obviously, we've got rough gender parity now, but if you look at the top, it's still very much full of old white men. And he, his father was a tenant farmer. He couldn't make the farm himself work because it's, you do see the farm briefly in the film because it's basically on terrible land. And he's actually more interested in astronomy than he is in actually doing any work on the farm. So he spends his whole life going from odd job to odd job to kind of support the farm, support his wife. So he worked as a special policeman. He did civil defence during World War II. I think he just hated farm work, which is fair <laughs> enough. He seems he seems like a smart dude. Yeah. Um, 
he taught himself fluent French and Latin from books and listening to foreign broadcasts. What the fuck? Uh, I know. It's bananas. Um and he's basically self-taught in terms of archaeology, yeah. which I know that sounds really bizarre, but that's not that unusual for this era. Um, like, definitely when we're looking at these initial excavations, we are starting to move. We're in the middle of a movement mm-hmm. that's from um, kind of interested individuals who are usually quite wealthy, get to fund their own excavations all the way through to actual professionals who have um, qualifications. And we're going to talk about those qualifications yeah. in a bit, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. And actually, in terms of what he's doing and his work for the period, it's pretty good. Um, like, he's not incompetent. He's re- His archaeology can actually be pretty well praised. Like, his record keeping is really, really good. Um but I think part of the reason he's fallen out of history is he just didn't publish anything. Right. Um, so his notebooks are in the Suffolk County Archaeological Archive. And it looks like everything he did was basically worked up by Ipswich Museum for publication. So I'm not sure exactly how that happened, whether that was just because he was working for them most of the time mm-hmm. as this kind of jobbing archaeologist or mm-hmm. if he simply wasn't interested in it because he did definitely publish uh, a lot of work on astronomy including right. i think he i think he references the book he took he published in the film doesn't he yes yeah yeah yeah. he does that, that his yeah. wife is reading his book because she misses him which is actually quite a yes. sweet moment yeah i really like that we see this relationship between Basil and his wife, May, and in my notes at one point, I've written justice for May because she seems like a really great woman who is very supportive and very, very patient, but he is just the absolute pinnacle of a man obsessed by his work. And he has this, like, his characterization is really that he's very, very driven and he cares and he wants to discover things, which is interesting because the first introduction we have to him, he's negotiating with Edith Pretty about his pay. And there's this sort of implication that he's going to be the, uh, the sort of manual labor rather than a creative individual. And, and so it's nice to see the film play with that a little bit. But we have this sort of will they, won't they between Basil Brown and Edith Pretty that cuts through their kind of collaborative partnership and leaves us with this weird tension when his wife arrives. I found that very frustrating. I think this was very clearly an example of the film scrabbling for some kind of romantic plot that I don't think needed to be there. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I don't think that weird tension needed to be there at all. Um, And I think it's kind of one of those things where sometimes you look at a Hollywood film and they don't think that a man and a woman can interact without it being a romantic relationship. Yeah, everyone knows that you can't be friends with people. Oh my God, of course you can't be friends with people. What are you thinking? (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, it's just surreal. And I think one of the, the interesting things is where that comes in in terms of class. Because obviously he has what's very much coded as a a lower class accent. He did really Mm. have that accent, according to his obituary. 
obviously his Edith has a much higher class accent, although I don't think it's as cut glass as it probably should have been. Um, mostly because I think when we see or hear the re- kind of real posh people's accents from that time, they sound very fake. Mm. So you get that and you get that scene where he's trying to come in through the front door and the, yeah. and the obviously the butler won't let him come in through the front door because he's the help. Yeah. He's got to go around to the back. Whereas everybody else, obviously, who turns up a little bit later gets to swan in straight through the front door. So it's yeah. it's really interesting on that level what it is doing and thinking about class. But I'm not sure it's on a much deeper level than kind of a superficial conflict. Right. And so when we have these other archaeologists arriving, um, mainly Charles Phillips, who took over the excavation from Brown as soon as they sort of realised it was a significant site, and he brings with him a little team of collaborators and other archaeologists we see this real class split between brown and the gardeners and sort of farm help that were digging the site before and brown is sort of immediately sidelined although in reality he and phillips did collaborate together they may not have liked each other very much but they did come to work together and respect each other and this class conflict is sort of suddenly flipped into being about the sort of local museum and the British Museum and the idea that this is going to be taken over by this big institution that don't have as much sort of emotional investment in it. And so it stops being about the sort of class conflict and becomes a sort of local versus metropolitan conflict, which I thought sort of undermined a lot of what the film had clearly been trying to do up until that point. Yeah, I think that's a big problem with this film in general. There's two halves to it. And once the British Museum turns up, it gets a whole new set of protagonists, which I found very, very strange. Like, I feel like it should have picked one or the other, because obviously it picks up on um, these young archaeologists from the who are working with the British Museum, not necessarily from it, as well as kind of more established, more posh people. Um, And obviously they're also coming from the Ministry of Works, which Mm -hmm. is early governmental body that through various really tricky permutations eventually becomes English Heritage. Right. Who I work with. They're great. I love them. I have to say say that. I'm contractually obligated. (laughs) Um. I know you are, but but English Heritage do genuinely do some pretty, pretty incredible work preserving sites like this. So, yeah. Yeah, so obviously the Ministry of Works is a really interesting body. I've worked a lot with stuff they've done. I'm sorry, here we go. Up on Hadrian's Wall. Of course. Uh, of course, because uh, they re- they basically made a lot of it a lot more stable and a lot more safe. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the stuff they're doing is about preservation rather than necessarily bringing up new things. Right. But they're also interested in things that are relevant to the nation as a whole which I think comes out a little bit more in this film although they don't really go into kind of the statutory powers that various bodies had over over Sutton Hoo mm-hmm. uh, but obviously the Sutton Hoo discovery it is a thing of importance to the nation as a whole it's not something you'd want to see split up and sold off completely um, and obviously that doesn't end up happening 
uh, which is fantastic. And that is thanks to Edith Pretty, who did decide to uh, donate the contents of the uh, finds to the British Museum, um, which obviously she didn't have to do. No. Um, she could have sold them, made an awful lot of money. Um, mm. And it's great that she didn't. I think it's interesting that the kind of conclusion of the film is about Edith Pretty giving giving the finds to the British Museum because she wants people to feel as much sort of joy and wonder as she did when she saw them for the first time. And it's done in this very beautiful, very romantic way. I will say I watched this film um, with my with my friends with a kind of group chat going on the side. And one of them suggested that she should have just donated them to the uh, Athens Museum instead, which I find <laughs> delightful. <laughs> uh, oh my gosh. But the treasures end up in the British Museum. And so actually that brings us quite nicely onto the second love triangle in the film and this sort of husband and wife partnership that we see. Let's talk about Margaret Guido. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, she was done dirty by this film. Yeah. I'm really disappointed. Um, and do you want to talk a little bit about the book and who wrote it? Yeah, so this is this is what really pissed me off. I watched this film knowing nothing about the book that it was based on and sort of assumed that it was a like it's a rediscovery of basil brown how good is that like great give him the credit that he deserves lovely i did not know anything about peggy piggott or guido going into this um but what we see (laughs) in the film is this kind of young woman who's not very good at her job and is sort of a little bit amateur but then happens to be the first person to find gold on the site and you know, she's just, she's the young wife along for the ride. In actual fact, <laughs> the book, The Dig, is written by her nephew. So Peggy's nephew apparently never bothered to find out his aunt's involvement while she was alive, did not know that she was even at the site. Ten years after her death, decides to write this book about it that is really all about Brown. She is a tiny little side character. And I am just fascinated by the way that this man managed to use his aunt's biography to sell the book like that's clearly it a lot of the marketing is about the idea that you know it's her nephew telling the story but she is a little plot moppet in the background who does fuck all and it's just i'm really (laughs) mad about it i mean i completely agree with you like Obviously, earlier we were talking about um, archaeological qualifications. Yeah. By the time of the dig at Sudden Hoot, she'd been doing fieldwork for at least five years. Um, she'd even directed an excavation. Um, right. She had a degree from Cambridge, a postgraduate diploma in Western European history from the newly founded Institute of Archaeology. Like, she's probably, in terms of actual qualifications that have been given to her and not just weight of experience one of the most qualified people on the site. Right. <laughs> it's absolutely bizarre. Um, yes. <laughs> and kind of the representation of her as a slightly clumsy, a little bit shy. I don't understand that. She was an archaeological powerhouse. Yeah. She was publishing like at least two papers a year for years and years and years. Like you can't go anywhere in, I think, her main her main um, area was the Iron Age without bumping into her. I had never heard of her before watching this film, which is entirely on me and down to the fact that I'm not an archaeologist. She was fucking incredible. And 
in this film, we are introduced to her because Charles Phillips, who is, I think, pretty much the villain of the piece, suggests that she'd be useful for the digs because she's small and light and she won't break anything by stepping on it. Obviously, then five minutes later, she puts her foot through something. Um, but she's very much presented as this kind of young girl. And I'm using that word deliberately. She's shown as very, very childish. Um, she's completely inappropriately dressed, apparently, because she's come straight from her honeymoon. She's married to this older man who doesn't seem to be very interested in her kind of romantically or intellectually. And her job is to just do some of the grunt work. No one's listening to her. No one's interested in her thoughts. And I, I sort of assumed that she wasn't a real person because of how flimsy her characterization is. So then to go and find out more about her was like where's our biography of her like fuck basil brown like good for him but also come on yeah absolutely i mean it took me a second because i was like peggy pigger peggy Pig- wait that's peggy guido oh god yeah. okay <laughs> yeah so yeah she's really really fascinating and it's also interesting the way they choose to frame this love triangle because obviously it ends with her making this positive choice to divorce Stuart or have him go off without her to wherever he's going. They didn't divorce for another 15 years. Yeah. Um, and obviously, I'm not going to get too into her private life because I don't know enough about it to say that much. But they've kind of moved so much stuff around in the service of a not very good love triangle. One of the things I did really like about her and her and the actual like romantic arc she goes on through this film, which again didn't particularly like, is that she is that lovely talk that they have about the past, which really, really worked for me in terms of what I think the film was going for and should have really had at its core. Mm. Yeah, I think this is a film that, and this is a plot problem, not a kind of subject material problem. This is a film that didn't know who its protagonists were and also didn't know who its villains were. And so we're jumping between all these characters and we never really spend enough time with any of them to feel comfortable with them. I, thinking about the pacing of this, it feels like it was written as a three-parter that got squashed into one film and... I think the choice to put it on Netflix is part of that. I can imagine this being a sort of Sunday night BBC thing over two or three weeks and having very, very different pacing and very different kind of room for these characters to breathe and to grow. And I, that dramatic choice, like I understand Netflix is where the money is, but it does mean that we have these kind of quite compressed characters and quite compressed narratives. Whereas if we'd had more time, the way that Peggy talks about sort of memory and history and the thing that got her interested in archaeology the way that we see Edith and her son dealing with the idea of her mortality the idea of time passing and even Basil and his interest in the stars while he's watching this boat come out of the ground like I think there's something very beautiful there but we don't get the sort of room to breathe in those stories yeah I think you're absolutely right they're trying to do too many too many things at once and there's not really very much of a solid character arc to grasp onto yeah and i think that would be that would have worked a lot better if they'd been focusing more on the archaeology because we don't find out 
actually that much about anything that they're doing or the kind of context about it. So we get this very bizarre pronouncement that I think we addressed earlier from one of the archaeologists that now we realise Anglo-Saxons are complicated and they had culture. And where's that coming from? I'm pretty sure <laughs> we knew that before. The light has turned on the Dark Ages, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, <laughs> someone says Dark Ages unironically and I screamed. I know, I know. It's the, it's, it's the 1930s. I can accept Dark Ages. Um, <laughs> but You never get the sense of what the magnitude of this find is. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Like, I really liked, there are a couple of shots that I really liked. And one of them is that shot when they've largely excavated the ship. And you see, mm. you kind of rise up over the mine, mound onto it. Whoever, um, like, put that shot together absolutely deserves a pay rise. That was beautiful. It was really it was well done. It's a beautiful film. Like, don't get me wrong. It's beautifully yeah. filmed. And the, the shots of the actual excavation are largely recreated like shot for shot from the photographs of the dig site which is beautiful to see and that research and that kind of care is very loving and very considerate but it does mean that we have this very very beautiful film with nothing happening yes no i think i think you're absolutely right and there are definitely ways in which they're hamstrung so obviously one of the big big things that we get from the Saturn Hugh excavation is the helmet. Yes. Everybody loves that helmet. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. But obviously the first reconstruction wasn't until 1946 because you get a stop put on all of this work until after um, after World War II, which is obviously very, very frustrating in terms of timelines mm-hmm. because you can't have this narrow focus on the dig and also pull out all these treasures. Mm. Um, and I think they I get the feeling that they struggled with that a lot it's not like when you're doing to bring it back to Egyptology if you were doing a film about uh, Carter Mm. looking into this tomb and suddenly being like there's gold there are all these objects here it's this archaeological process of kind of ongoing reconstruction and reinterpretation Um, And obviously they've inserted a couple of scenes into the film for drama, Mm -hmm. like the scene where Brown is buried, which I think is original to the book. And as far as I can tell, didn't actually happen, Um, (laughs) which is probably for the best. That doesn't say very much about his fieldwork, that it just collapsed on him like that. Especially considering that literally 30 seconds before he is buried in this landslide of mud, he's telling Edith not to go into the dig site because it's not secure and they don't have struts yet. And it's like, you fucking idiot. (laughs) Yeah, that's it, exactly. It doesn't say very much about him as a competent excavator. <laughs> um, and I think, to be honest, in terms of the way it's laid out, it just, I don't think it works as the thing that they want it to work as. Mm, yeah. It makes more sense as kind of what you were saying, a longer series with more focus on different people. Because it feels like two films, or more than two films, that have been stitched together. Yeah. And I think one of the most tangible examples of that is something that we've sort of been skirting around for a while, which is this love triangle between Peggy, Stuart and Rory. I mean, it's actually a love square because Stuart is also kind of implied to be having an affair on the side as well. Wait, I missed that. Who is Stuart having an affair? Stuart spends his whole time going off with um, Kaya from The Witcher. Oh, you're right. Huh. 
I don't know who the character was. I definitely read that as the secret closet husband trope. And that gives this extra kind of level to his rejection of Peggy, this idea that actually perhaps he's gay or at least he's having an affair with this other man. There are lots of shots of the two of them sort of being very close and laughing together and then cut to Peggy looking neglected and sad. No, that absolutely makes sense. I hadn't even picked up on that, which... Honestly, usually I have more of, a, more of an eye for queer subtext. <laughs> I'm so disappointed in you, Hannah. <laughs> we have this kind of love square where Peggy and Rory have a will-they-won't-they they that eventually culminates in sex in a field and Stuart and one of the other archaeologists are sort of slinking off together. Let's talk about Rory Lomax, <laughs> the beigest man alive. Incredibly beige. So... Obviously, he didn't really exist. He's been invented whole cloth for this. Yeah. I think there was actually a military man on site who he's kind of been based on. Right. But in terms of his photography, would you like to go off about that? I would love to go off about this. So the a lot of the photographs of the excavation, at least from 1939, were taken by two women called Barbara Wagstaff and Mercy Lack who were on holiday together in the area and were both amateur photographers and decided to come by. Mercy Lack is actually a really amazing photographer and has been part of exhibitions um, for her street photography in London. There was a show at the Museum of London a couple of years ago of like London at night. And some of her pictures were in that, which was really, really wonderful exhibition. And it was amazing to see work by her. but Barbara and Mercy <laughs> seem, I don't know, if we, if you completely missed the Stuart um, implication, I, <laughs> I think this is an interesting one because they are a very close pair of lifelong companions who teach at the same school and go on holiday together. And I just have a very strong feeling about them because they are an example of these women that we see in the 1930s and the 20th century of kind of life partners together who pop up in the archives in a kind of sketchy way and there's actually very little biographical information around either of them but they're these two really interesting women who fit into the narrative of kind of amateur enthusiasm around Sutton Hoo in a beautiful way and they're cut out to be replaced by this this Rory Lomax character. The beigest man alive, yeah. The beigest man um, alive. And like, all respect to Johnny Flynn, I know he's very popular, he's fine. I didn't find his character particularly appealing or compelling in this. He doesn't really do anything. No. Um, oh, the one thing he does do is pull the uh, Air Force pilot out of the river. Um, oh, yeah. Which is very thrilling. Do do we have any detail on whether that actually happened? Yeah, I couldn't find anything on whether that actually happened, but there is a scene towards the end of the film where there's a plane crash um, and a young pilot has crashed into the river and drowned and Rory's the person who pulls his body out of the river. I assumed that was added for the drama and specifically because then you get this scene of the men pulling the boat up onto the bank that has a dead body in it, which is a beautiful parallel to the burial in the boat. But... It doesn't really do much apart from give us a kind of beautiful sequence of film. Yeah, I thought that was, it was interesting in terms of the way it was thinking about death and the way it was trying to have the war kind of hanging over them, which obviously Mm. was central to the investigation. There are all sorts of really 
interesting things that didn't happen at Sudanu, basically because of the war. It's interesting because they're simultaneously trying to cram all these characters in, but not really doing anything with them. And I think part of the problem is you could have had more characters. You could have brought in um, uh, Barbara Wagstaff and Mercy Lack and popped them in there with part of this kind of tourist crowd who went to see the excavations um, and brought that in and talked more about how this is a popular event. This is something people are interested in because obviously you get the um, kind of fate in the garden party right at the end when Mm. like after the decision that um, Edith Pretty owns what's been found at Sutton Who. But unfortunately, Mm -hmm. you don't get to see how regular people are interested in it because obviously everybody who turns up to this garden party is very, very posh. Yeah. So they're kind of undermining or not really exploring the class distinctions that they set up earlier in the film because this is essentially two different films happening at once. Yeah, and just on that note of these other characters, we have these we have these background figures. We have Charles Phillips, who is presented in the film as being about thirty years older than he actually was, and and is very much this sort of like stuffy old man, whereas in actual fact he was quite young. Um, we have little cameos from people like Stuart Piggott, who's very very underdeveloped. There's also W. F. Grimes. Um, so William Grimes was a really amazing person who was involved in the excavation of the London Mithraeum and was a huge part of the Institute of Archaeology and the kind of creation of archaeology as an academic discipline. He is a tiny, tiny part of this film, but he shows up with Phillips and the Piggots. And he's played by Asher Ali, which is a really interesting choice because um, William Grimes was a white Welshman. And in this, he's played by a British South Asian actor. I loved that as just a little bit of like, even if you have this historical figure, we're very aware of how this film is playing with truth. And so there's nothing wrong with casting an Asian actor in that part. I thought that was a really nice little choice. Yeah, no, I really liked that. And to be honest, I'm here for more complex casting. And definitely when you look at a lot of these films, um, they tend to make background characters white by default and even characters Mm. who have names and maybe have more complex history than white British, they also end up white by default. And obviously, yeah, maybe that's changing for some historical dramas. We've both watched Bridgerton, um, which was... We did both watch Bridgerton and I wanted to sort of bring this up as an example of like, actually, this is true colorblind casting mm. rather than... Yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, and definitely one of the problems I had with Bridgerton is that it wasn't completely colorblind. And they were trying to set up some sort of more complicated dynamic that was happening under the surface, but not really explaining yeah. how we got there or what was happening that suddenly Britain is free of racism, except maybe not really, except yeah. it is. Yeah, that was a very different approach to diversifying history. And I think this is actually a really nice example of how you can do that in just a very, very subtle way. Obviously, it would have been nice if Grimes had had a bigger part, if he'd been a more kind of pronounced character and we'd seen more of him. But even for that little cameo, it's it's nice to see a production taking a more casual relationship with its casting. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And also one that actually reflects that 
Britain did look like this during this period. There's too much of an emphasis on making things look historically accurate when a lot of the time that means making them very white and it's just not historically accurate. Yeah, we have the sort of costume drama aesthetic that's very, very strong yeah. in adaptations like this one. That that relates to class, it relates to gender roles, it relates to the presentation of sexuality, it relates to racialization of characters as well. And it's really important to remember that just because that is a kind of consistent look doesn't mean it's true or accurate. Yeah, that's it, exactly. But it's... And that's frustrating as well because obviously the sort of TV drama is part of the way we conceptualise and create our own history. Yeah. If you see it in fiction, that's what you pick up on it being. Even if you're told elsewhere, oh, that's not quite as accurate as you think it is, it's still the dominant impression you get, which is yeah. like we're storytelling people. We think through stories. I want to come back to the um, something we've sort of skimmed over is the framing of Anglo-Saxon and sort of Dark Ages history by this film. Obviously, this is a film that's using the sort of language and understanding of the 1930s, but I wanted to talk about how that's changed. And to me, it's interesting to see this film using using that 30s understanding when this is such a kind of live subject at the moment. I know you have a lot of thoughts on how we phrase this idea of Anglo-Saxonism and kind of nationalism as part of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and obviously, Anglo-Saxon is really a an identity that was created by Victorian scholars. And it gets picked up by people mm. like uh, G.K. Chesterton with The Ballad of the White Horse, where before you get all this stuff about before the gods that made the gods are drunk at dawn, they're fill. And it's this whole ballad about, oh, my brain has just gone to sleep for a second there. It's a ballad about <laughs> Alfred the Great and about him beating mm. back these various hordes of people who represent whatever is mm. wrong with the world and is unchristian and terrible. And mm. that gets picked up and that obviously gets picked up by um, people like Tolkien who bring that straight into yeah. their characterization of, of Aragorn. It's a really dominant feature mm. in our society. And the idea of mm. Anglo-Saxon has also been picked up and is really strong amongst white nationalists. And that's part of the reason yeah. I just don't use it anymore. It's not a term that was really used by the Anglo-Saxons to describe themselves. There's mm. a couple of outliers like um, Paul the Deacon in his Historia Langobardum, who describes them as the Anglo-Saxons. But it's right. not really something that they use themselves. We're probably looking at a much more local identity and an identity that's based around these small kingdoms rather than a joint cultural identity and definitely the 5th to 11th mm -hmm. centuries which is kind of what we're talking about when we talk about early medieval there's a lot of different cultures and people you've got this whole clash of the kind of Britonic kingdoms who end up pushed to um, to the west um, and they end up becoming kind of Wales and Cornwall and you get the Saxons, the Angles, the Jutes, Vikings and Normans, all sorts of really, really complicated people. And I'm going to pop a pun in from um, Pope Gregory the Great, which is kind of very infamous. <laughs> and I'm sorry for this. He made a joke when he saw some Angle slaves for sale in the market in Rome that they were non-Angli, said Angeli. They weren't Angles, they were angels. And Aww. I know... 
Um, and when he made um, a, he made another terrible joke about converts from the kingdom of Deira in Britain that they had been rescued from Deira, the wrath of God. Just genuinely, oh the man God. needed to be stopped. The fucking Pope <laughs> was just this this shit-posting pun guy. He was just a dad joke machine. It's terrible. He was. Yeah, I, this is a really interesting thing that we're seeing coming up at the moment in terms of how we engage with this history. And it's something that we have to think about in its kind of political implication because the history of early medieval and uh, what we're calling early medieval of this 5th to 11th century sort of era in Britain and the way that the different cultures and identities of this era have then been co-opted by white supremacist and white nationalist aesthetics. So we see this kind of obsession with the Vikings. We see this obsession with the idea of an Anglo-Saxon identity that comes back to this idea that there is a sort of ethno-nationalist white homeland in Britain that is absolutely false, is absolutely like a fiction and is very heavily kind of cultivated by a particular sort of Victorian um, eugenicist theory as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I will be the first to admit I love G.K. Chesterton. I think it's a beautiful poem, but the politics of it are extremely suspect definitely in terms of white nationalism that is something a lot of people in medieval studies are really dealing with at the moment I'm not going to go into it too much right now but obviously there was there's been a lot of complex conversations around race in uh, medieval studies Mm. and around how that's Mm. represented and also around um, racism and current scholars because on the one hand obviously you do have modern white nationalists trying to co-opt this and you also have quite a reactionary group inside what inside um medieval studies who are not necessarily very helpful Mm. when it comes to that and there have been protests and boycotts of conferences and it is all extremely complicated Although I can definitely yeah. say where I would come down on that one. Obviously, when you look at people like the Vikings, there's another fight going on there because of co-option of definitely objects like Thor's hammer, but have been completely co-opted by mm. white nationalists to the point where if I see one, I'm like, oh, I understand what's happening here. And I think this is, in a way, it's originated in the discipline of archaeology, it's then moved away from archaeology and now it's come back to bite archaeology. That that these concepts and this idea of a sort of white identity um, historically is something that did originate with archaeologists and then sort of entered into the mainstream and kind of became a little bit distant but has returned to the discipline. And we'll pop some links in the show notes to um, some of the discussions around this recently. There are some brilliant, brilliant scholars working on the idea of challenging racialization in medieval studies. There are so many fantastic researchers around this, and I don't want to fuck up by leaving out any important names right now, which is why I'm not naming anyone specifically. I want to make sure I give everyone their credit. But we're seeing this happen in terms of, as you say, conferences, the idea of changing the names of Anglo-Saxon studies departments and that kind of thing. And the fact that so many of these symbols have been co-opted by 
uh, fascist groups and sort of white supremacist groups is a really significant thing that then archaeology has to deal with as well. But it's important because I think this is some soul searching that archaeology and medieval history have to do as well. It's not something that they can kind of wash their hands of. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And to be honest, that also comes along with archaeology and medieval history and obviously classics, where I'm coming from. Yeah. They're spectacularly white disciplines. And partly that has been a class thing because definitely the reason I went into classics was I went to a posh school where I was taught classics. We had a choice of classics or Latin. If I'd stayed at my state school, I wouldn't have had that choice. And obviously I'm talking as a white person about this. It's so messy and I understand that a film like this one has a very specific focus and a very limited scope, but the choice to create a narrative around firstly a very sort of nostalgic view of British archaeology, secondly something linked to this sort of Anglo-Saxon history and identity, and to, to, to make that film feels like a very deliberate choice. We're not seeing dramatizations around the history of exclusion from archaeology unless the main character is a working class white man. I think that's a really significant choice that we can't get away from here. This is something that we touched on when we were discussing The Mummy and I think it is interesting that The Dig kept coming up as an example of what I hoped a good film about archaeology would be. And in some ways it is. It's a very beautiful film. It shows the reality of a lot of mud. But I think the kind of response to it has been tinted by this sort of same history of nostalgia, the same kind of um, very English fixation on the 1930s as this kind of beautiful like moment before the storm of the Second World War, which, which is a huge kind of genre. There's a whole industry around this sort of like last gasp of calm um, in film and in historical interpretation and stuff. And like, yeah, yeah, okay, that's fair. It's a significant moment in British history. It isn't the only <laughs> significant moment in British history. And the implications of this sort of World War II nostalgia are that we tend to lose sight of everything else. And we tend to see this very white, very English uh, adaptation of history. I think a lot of my problems with The Dig come down to the fact that the pacing does throw it off, but also that I would like there to be more films so that we don't have to just look for this one as the only example of archaeology on film because some of the stuff that it does really beautifully are these shots of the actual excavation the kind of recreation of the treasures is beautifully brilliantly done and the filmmakers worked very closely with the british museum to make those reproductions as accurate as possible which is so impressive and so fantastic but they still could have made more of that i think yeah i think you're right and definitely in terms of the excavation there's so much more they could have talked about and we could have learnt about and definitely mm. again I think part of the problem is archaeology is slow and it's not and it's boring um time yeah. team notwithstanding it's really hard to make digging sexy I know I know I love time team um but because these some of the most interesting things aren't turning up until 10 years 20 30 years later having been worked on very slowly yeah. it doesn't necessarily yeah. make for a good film 
it makes maybe it yeah. makes more more sense to have it as a series of short vignettes or even mm. bringing it back to your idea about the TV series like here's one dig here's the next dig here's the last dig there's yeah. I think there would should have been a lot more room to play around with time than they necessarily let themselves yes. have because obviously they were so focused on this adaptation of the book so this is a film that is about time it's about memory and the kind of layers of history and I wish they had made more of that I think they kind of allude to it beautifully but I would love to see this sense of implication in the legacy we have this sort of implication that Edith dies very shortly after the action ends but what if we actually talked about her legacy as well what if we saw the way that her bequests were used to purchase future archaeological sites what if we saw the way that she becomes part of the story of Sutton Hoo. She becomes part of its kind of modern site and its and its legacy. And I would have loved a kind of more fluid understanding of time. These sort of overlapping stories and almost almost like the kind of approach to time that you see in a play like Arcadia, where you have characters from different eras sort of crossing over each other and interacting in this really, really beautiful way and i think they try to do that to a small Mm. extent so when there's this scene where brown is sitting by the river and you get the boat coming past and for a moment Mm. it's almost it's a ghost boat until it snaps and he's back in his modern time those were some of the best moments of this film for me and i wish that they'd they'd taken a little bit more time to play that up a bit more and to think about, mm. because obviously the landscape of Sutton Hoo is a almost continuously occupied landscape. You've got people continuing to mm. use it and work it straight from the Neolithic all the way through. And there's even, there's a brief reference yeah. to local legends right at the start of it, where I think Edith Pretty talks about um, how local girls go and lie down on the mounds in the hope that they'll get pregnant, which is fascinating. Yes, yeah. tell me more about that. Absolutely. Yeah. How are people conceptualizing this? What are they thinking? I thought that was really charming. And I, I loved those little hints of the kind of fluidity of time. But again, I think this is a case where if the film had been braver in its exploration of spiritualism, we would have seen that very, very differently. Spiritualism would have been a space to explore that. And I think they were they were firmly ensconced in scientific realism, except when they allowed themselves occasionally, like with the boat, to slip out of it. And when they did mm. take that leap, it was much more successful, which mm. is a problem with scientific realism when you're trying to <laughs> bring across a feeling rather than a fact, because the film was pretty short on facts. Um, definitely yeah. to bring it back again to yelling about how this has changed everything. What has it changed? We don't have the context as viewers to understand right. this was the perception before Sutton Who. This is the perception afterwards. Mm. And to look at things like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, all that sort of thing, and be like, this is what we thought. This has changed everything we know about, I don't know, these uh, Frankish coins, these links with the continent, this complex social life that's going on. Where was that? What were we talking about? And so instead, we just see this kind of moment of everyone insisting it's Viking and Brown saying, no, it's Anglo-Saxon. And then lo and behold, he's right. And... 
we yeah we don't have the feeling we don't have the kind of emotional impact of that we're also it's very thin on science it's very thin on museum it's very thin on the kind of reality of that you know that that historically we have brown and the other archaeologists comparing the rivets that they find at Sutton Hoo to the rivets that were found at Snape and at the other boat burials and things like that. And they're trying to place it within its historical context. We don't see the actual work of archaeology really going on. Yeah, that's it. And obviously that's partly because obviously Brown is self-taught. He doesn't, he's not necessarily cued into the latest archaeological techniques, but there's Mm. not even a moment for him to discuss what he's doing and why he's doing it and what his process is. Like, obviously, when he's talking with um, Edith about which mounds he's going to go into, there's a moment there where you can kind of get his experience and how he's thinking about it. But that cuts out pretty quickly Mm. once the actual excavation starts. um, And you're left with the impression that kind of this 1930s archaeology is just digging holes in the ground. Which is disappointing. (laughs) And especially when you then look at Peggy Guido's work and the fact that a lot of the things that she was most remarkable for were how quickly she could go through a site and that some of the techniques that she worked with were in order to kind of try and understand as much about a landscape as possible, as fast as possible. And that these are the sort of techniques that are being developed in the background of the Sutton Hoo site. Yeah, absolutely. And again, to bring that back to talking about female archaeologists and this legacy obviously Peggy learned from Tessa Verney Wheeler and uh, Mortimer Wheeler so they were a pair of archaeologists who were very very popular they were really good archaeologists again Mortimer Wheeler is a lot better known because he was on tv in the 1950s and everything he and Mm. Verney Wheeler did was published under his name part of why Verney Wheeler is so important is because Peggy learned all of this meticulous excavation from her. She even uh, dedicated one of her books to Verney Wheeler. There's this whole lineage of female archaeology and complex stuff that's happening that's overlooked. Mm. And if you dig more into the archaeological technique and who's learning what from who, you can bring that Mm. out. Yeah. Yeah, It's, it's, it's disappointing. And I guess this brings us quite nicely onto something that I always ask guests on this show is sort of how you would change it. And I think for both of us, a lot of this comes down to fixing the pacing and deciding who your protagonists are. But justice for Peggy, (laughs) justice for all of these women who are being left out of the narrative still. No, that's completely it. Um, I would like justice for Peggy. And I would honestly like them to drop the love triangles because I don't think they're very interesting. No. They're kind of hinted at, but never really acted on in any very deep way. So when you get this invented character, Rory Lomax, I got the impression that Peggy in the film, because obviously he didn't really exist, uh, gets with him because she's bored of her husband and her husband's treating her badly. Not yeah. because she's there's actually any spark or interest there. He's just the nearest yeah. available interesting body. Which is such a bleak but accurate way of summing up his character. The nearest available body. Please may nobody ever describe me as that. (laughs) Something that flows on from this is, what would you like to see made? I think we've already sort of 
there are so many of these people who deserve biographies of their own and who deserve this kind of like space and luxury and attention that the film gives to Brown um, who haven't been represented. Are there any are there any people that you'd like to see, any excavations that you'd like to see dramatised like this? There are a whole series of women, like obviously Molly Crowfoot. I think mm. she was really fascinating. When we were working on the um, Women in Archaeology exhibition, I actually got, we got an email from, I think, her great nephew, who had a lot to say and was really glad that she was getting a little bit more recognition. Um, it would be really interesting to see that and to see her life in um, the Sudan. Um, right. And yeah. kind of how she interacted, she and her husband, again, another archaeological couple, um, interacted mm. with the archaeology there. And you could also bring in all sorts of interesting things to say about the empire. Because while they were out there, yeah. their children all went to boarding school in England. Like, what was oh, course, what was that right. like? Um, like, I personally got the impression that she was kind of okay with it so she could pursue her own goals. But mm. genuinely, it would be fascinating to find out what that meant to her and a little bit more. Yeah. There's There's got to be some good drama there. Um, Absolutely. And definitely something that you don't have to manufacture via artificial collapses of trenches. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess that I, to be very clear, do not want to see this adapted because I think it is a perfect book and I do not trust any director or scriptwriter to do anything with it. Ghost Wall is a fucking flawless book. I adore it. It's about a girl living in an Iron Age reconstruction in the 1970s for the course of a summer and says some really brilliant and really interesting things about class and archaeology because her father is a sort of amateur enthusiast Mm -hmm. who's clashing with the university and the archaeology students that are doing this reconstruction. And it's a very short, absolutely stunning book by Sarah Moss. I would highly, highly recommend it to anyone. I read it, finished it, immediately went back to the beginning and read it again um in the course of about like a single six hour sitting um, and it is one of the most interesting representations of history and the past and our overlaps with it that i have ever read i would really highly recommend that that sounds actually really fascinating i'm gonna have to pick it up it's so beautiful if i was gonna go for like a modern story i would definitely go for Favourite of our mutual friends, Hild by Nicola Griffiths, which obviously is about uh, St Hilda and about Mm. kind of this period in um, the period of Sutton Hoo, um, maybe slightly later, and about somebody who is has a complex gender identity, a complex sexual identity, who's moving through this very complicated and widely and rapidly opening up political world. Um, I think that would be really interesting. I would recommend it to anybody who's interested in the early medieval period and in the lives of women inside it. Thank you so much for watching this film and all your wonderful thoughts on it. If people want to find you on the internet, where are you? So I'm on Twitter at Hannah Tail, um, and I can be found rambling about Hadrian's Wall on there. And if you want to find out more about that and about my 
research on archaeological sites, you can look there. Thank you so much for talking to me. It's been a real delight.